Okay, as Madeline said, my name's uh, Dave, and uh, uh, I just want to add my welcome to uh, you this afternoon. Uh, if you're visiting us uh, here in person, or if you're online uh, this afternoon, and you're maybe joining us for the first time, or just uh, you've been once or twice before, or looked in once or twice before, uh, it's great to have you with us. Uh, we pray that God will bless you as we pray that he'll bless the rest of us as well. Uh, as, uh, as Madeline said, we're continuing our series entitled On the Road with Jesus, working through the account in Luke's Gospel. Uh, as we pick up the story today, Jesus has been on the road for some three years, traveling through villages and towns, teaching the people and performing miracles. We've seen him heal those with leprosy, give sight to the blind, enable the lame to walk, cast out evil spirits, and even, even raise the dead. His teaching and the miracles he performed led to him having a great following among the people. Crowds just flocked to wherever he was. But we've seen also that his ministry and the popularity that it brought was an affront to the religious authorities of the day. He associated with sinners he went to the house of a corrupt tax collector and ate with him. And his teaching ran contrary to their strict and legalistic interpretation of the law. He healed on the Sabbath. He touched those who would be considered unclean. He directly addressed the hypocrisy he saw in the scribes and the Pharisees, their pomp and their ceremony. All this brought him into conflict with these leaders. The events we read about last week will have served to strengthen the feelings of these leaders against Jesus. They'd seen the crowds throng to greet Jesus as he entered Jerusalem. They'd heard them call out those familiar words from the Psalms, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus had refused to rebuke his disciples when asked to do so by some of the Pharisees. Then to compound matters, Jesus had gone into the temple courts and drove out those who were trading there, overturning the tables of the money changers and those who were selling doves. He rebuked for them for turning the house of prayer into a den of robbers. So at the end of chapter 19, we see the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and other leaders intent on trying to kill Jesus. Today we move into chapter 20, a chapter that I would characterize as being all about authority. I wonder how you are with authority. I guess the answer may depend on whether you're the person who's in authority or the person who is under authority. It probably also depends on what our experience has been of those who've been in positions of authority. We don't have to look very far today to see situations where authority is being abused. You know, we've talked today about the situation in Ukraine. We see in Putin a man with authority who's abusing that authority with his own people 
and with the people of other nations. But we see abuse far closer to home. We see abuse in the domestic environment all too often. We see abuse in workplaces, in schools, in politics, in law enforcement, in rulers, and sadly, in churches. You know, we shouldn't condone or excuse any instance of the abuse of power or authority. It's plain wrong, and it's just another example of man's failure to live by God's standards. You know, before we move through this chapter, I just want to say, you know, I don't know all of you, and I certainly don't know, I don't even know who's online, let alone the experiences of those who are online. But I just want to say for any who've been on the receiving end of such abuse, I want you to know that God knows about it. And he can bring healing and restoration. You know, there are people here today who'd love to sit and talk with you and pray with you if that's your situation. We'd love to pray that the Holy Spirit would bring healing to you. Please, if that's your situation, either you're here today or if you're online, contact us. And we'd love to sit and talk and pray with you, Owen or Jenny or Anne or myself, or your life group leaders share with us and we want to support you through this. But equally, you know, we mustn't allow our experiences of such abuse to cause us to reject the whole concept of authority. Exercised correctly, it's for our well-being. It can bring a sense of security and enable us to flourish and be the people that God intends us to be. We're going to work our way through chapter 20, section by section, and see what the passage reveals to us about authority. Do you know what? As I read this passage, and as I've been preparing for this, just reading through the passage time and time again, it seemed to me, I don't want to trivialize it, but it seemed to me like it was a bit of a boxing contest, you know, where... You know, the leaders of the day, the religious leaders, were trying to put Jesus into a corner and land the killer blow. You know, almost it was, <laughs> if, you can, if you can mix boxing with tag wrestling, it was like that because actually uh, his opponents changed from scene to scene. But they were all leaders, people with authority in that day, and they were out to get Jesus. They were out to corner him and land that killer punch. So as we read through it, section by section, you'll see there's various rounds in this boxing contest. In this, in this one, they're seeking to see the back of Jesus. They want nothing less than to see him killed. Let's read the first section together. It's going to come up on the screen. It's there now already. Um, one day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, well, why didn't you believe him? 
But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that he did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's put this into context. One day makes it sound just like any other day. But let's remember where Jesus was. The past three years of his ministry, of his time on the road, has been leading up to this. He's now in Jerusalem in what we refer to as Holy Week, the days leading up to his crucifixion, to the time when his false accusers would have their way and he would be nailed to a cross to die. He knew the end of the story, as he had done throughout his life. He came to earth intent on taking on himself the sins of the people, you and me. The penalty for our sins should have been death, our death, our eternal separation from God. But Jesus took our place, bore our sin and shame so that we could have eternal life with him. He knew this was his purpose in coming. He knew that he was going to go to the cross and suffer there from a cruel death, and yet we find him teaching in the temple days before his arrest, preaching the gospel, this wonderful message of salvation. With the background of the events of that first Palm Sunday, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem and the casting out of the money changers and of his wider ministry, Luke records for us the exchanges between Jesus and the religious leaders in which they would seek to trap him into saying something that would allow them to bring charges against him. In this first instance, the chief priests, scribes and elders challenged Jesus, just who do you think you are? Or, where does your authority come from? But Jesus turns the tables on them and responds with a question of his own about the authority that lay behind John's baptism. You know, this was such a clever and insightful question. Jesus knew that John had been popular amongst the people who recognized him as a prophet from God, even though they, the religious leaders, rejected him. So they were reluctant to say his baptism was of human origin because they knew that that would infuriate the crowds and they were fearful of being stoned. But what they didn't want to acknowledge was that his baptism was from heaven because they knew then that Jesus could press them on why they didn't believe him. So they took the coward's way out and professed ignorance. In doing so, they looked foolish in front of the people because they were supposed to be able to discern these things. They were unable to discern the source of John's authority. And yet here they were setting themselves up as those who would determine the authority of the Son of God. How ridiculous. But Jesus wasn't finished with them yet. He went on to tell a story, a parable, Let's read on. In verse 9 we read, And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. 
When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Here Jesus uses a picture that would be very familiar to his listeners and certainly to the religious leaders. A picture of a vineyard and the use of this to illustrate Israel, God's people, is common through the Old Testament. There are references to this in the Psalms, in the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea. We just look at one of these in Isaiah chapter 5 where we read, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. Here's a picture of God's chosen people and his love and care for them. A people God rescued from captivity in Egypt and with whom he had a covenant relationship. But as we see throughout the Old Testament, this was a people who strayed from God, who disobeyed him and went their own way. In Jesus' day, it was common practice for a landowner to appoint tenant farmers to work the land, and they would pay their rent in kind by passing back to the landowner some of the crops or the produce from the land. So the par- in the parable that Jesus taught, the man who planted the vineyard is God, and the tenant farmers are the leaders of Israel, those appointed by God to guide them and to be responsible for their spiritual well-being. The servants who the master sent were the prophets that God sent, as recorded in the Old Testament, to bring warnings to the children of Israel and to seek to turn their hearts back to God. As we read, each of these was beaten and wounded and sent away with nothing. So the owner decides to send his son, his heir, Jesus, but spotting a chance to kill him so that they could have ownership of the vineyard. You know, they were so desperate, these leaders of Israel, to cling on to power and authority for themselves. This is 
Jesus painting a picture of all that has happened and all that is about to take place. The prophets had been ignored, so God, in his loving kindness, sent his one and only son, Jesus, to show us the way back to God. Jesus, the sinless son of God, knew that he was headed to the cross, that he was required to shed his blood so that the penalty for our sins would be paid and that we might know the promise of an eternity spent with him. And this, this offer calls for a response. Jesus ends the parable by pointing out the consequences of the actions of the tenants. Death and being replaced by others who would care for the vineyard. They'd failed to respond to the expression of love from God, the landowner, in sending his own son, the heir. And the result for them was eternal separation from him. Responsibility for leading God's people would no longer lie with them. It would pass to others as we see fulfilled as we read through the book of Acts. You know, the crowd found this message unacceptable, found it really hard to believe. Surely not, they say. So Jesus again quotes from the psalm, this time from Psalm 118, in telling them that the stone the builders rejected, the leaders of Israel rejected, has become the cornerstone. He, Jesus, rejected by their leaders, would now become the cornerstone, the foundation of the church. You know, the cornerstone is the most important stone that is laid. It provides the guide for the continuation of the building, of that structure. Following it, its trajectory ensures the building stays true and will be strong. The final verse of this section is a sober message to his listeners. And it's a sober message to us too. We have a choice to make in response to the love the Father has shown in sending his Son. In that familiar verse in John's Gospel, chapter 3 and verse 16, we're told that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes, it requires an action on our part to believe in him and then we will not perish but have eternal life. There's only one way to enjoy fulfillment in life. The only way that we can be made acceptable to God. If we fail to accept the offer, we fall on this cornerstone and face an eternity separated from him. Jesus didn't pull any punches. He was very clear in his message because it was so serious as we shall see, and as you might expect, his message to the religious, religious leaders didn't land well. He'd effectively stripped away from them any authority that they had before the people. And they were furious. So they sought another route to trap him. So we move into another round of the boxing match. Paying taxes to Caesar... We read from verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. 
So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the, word, the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. So he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Yes, they were out to get Jesus. If it hadn't been for the following that Jesus had, they would have seized him at that time. They knew that the parable he told was aimed directly at them and they had no answer. Having failed to trap Jesus on religious grounds, they changed their point of attack to one of state or governance issues, thinking that he might condemn himself and enable them to hand him over to the, religious, to the Roman authorities. They start by recruiting some spies to carry out their dirty work. And these spies approach him with flattery. We know you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. <laughs> Absolutely right. But used as a means of softening Jesus up, as if he would be taken in by this. Then they pose a question seeking to trap him again. The context is important here. The people lived under the rule of an oppressive Roman authority who funded their regime and the, and the military that ensured the continuity of their rule through harsh taxes on the people. Taxes that were collected very often by corrupt officials working for the state who used their position to extort more than was due to enhance their own wealth. We saw this a couple of weeks ago when Jesus had his encounter with Zacchaeus, who was one such tax collector. So understandably, the Roman authorities were hated by the people. The question, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not, therefore plays into this situation. Jesus' endorsement of giving tribute to or paying taxes to Caesar would cause his popularity with the people to suffer while inciting them to withhold their tribute or taxes would doubtless get him arrested by the authorities. Gotcha. Or so they thought. But Jesus confounds them with his reply. He endorses the requirement of the people and us to submit to those in authority over us for the things that are rightly theirs including, in this case, taxes. But he requires them and us to submit to God in the things that are God's. Brought into a current-day context, we should pay our taxes. We should obey the laws of our land. We should do whatever is required to us, our duty as citizens of our country, insofar 
as they do not conflict or contradict what God requires of us. What God as our creator requires of us is our worship of him. Hearts and lives submitting to him and to his will. No human authority, no human authority can ever or should ever seek to require this from us. They themselves should should submit to the Lord God who created them, who sustains them and has provided all that they have. Another failed attempt to ensnare Jesus. So now the scene changes, you know. The characters change, you know. They've tagged somebody else and others come to join the party, join the fray. This time a group of Sadducees come to him and once again challenge his authority. Let's read from verse, th- uh, verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared ask him any question. The Sadducees were the Jewish aristocrats, And in spite of their show of religious devotion, they were corrupt and money-grabbing. John the Baptist described them as a brood of vipers. They gave great store by the first five books of Moses, the Torah, rejecting the Pharisees' belief that oral tradition was equal in authority to Scripture. So the basis of their challenge to Jesus was on the authority and inspiration of Scripture. They posed to Jesus a hypothetical and actually somewhat far-fetched question based on what Moses had written about in Deuteronomy, where if a man died leaving no son, his brother was to take his wife and marry her to produce a son who would carry forward the name of the deceased brother. The situation the Sadducees cite is you know, takes this to extremes, whereby this woman was eventually married to seven brothers. And then they asked Jesus to determine who she'll be married to after the resurrection. This is, this is pretty rich, really. 
for a group who didn't believe there was anything after this life. They had no belief in angels or demons, the supernatural. No belief in the resurrection or heaven or hell. Jesus, knowing their stance on resurrection and their reliance on the teaching of Moses, uses the same source to set them straight regarding a life beyond this life. The instance Jesus quotes is recorded in Exodus chapter 3. God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses' father had long since departed this life, and yet when addressing Moses, God uses the present tense to say, I am their God. If there was no resurrection, God would surely have used the past tense. I was their God. When they were alive, I was their God. But no, he says, I am their God. The way God phrases it makes it clear that whilst they're no longer alive on earth, they still exist and they are in relationship with him. He is their God now, just as he was when they walked the earth. But before he makes this crucial point, Jesus addresses the hypothetical question they've raised, ridiculous though it is. So often today, we see interviews with politicians and others in which they're faced with a hypothetical question. Often, as in this case, seeking to trap them into saying something that they would regret, saying something that they would have to do if that scenario came to pass. Most often they dodge the question saying it's purely hypothetical. That's what they're trained to do. But Jesus isn't like that with the Sadducees. He addresses not just the wider issue regarding the resurrection, but also the specifics of the case they've cited. It's clear that in their thinking, any life after death is just kind of a copy of this life. It's just more of the same. Maybe a little bit better, but it's more of the same. Maybe we too are somewhat limited in our thinking of what heaven will be like. I'm sure I don't have all the answers. What I do know is the difference with this life will go far beyond what we very often trot out. You know, there'll be no more sickness and no more suffering. That's certainly true. But it falls so far short of what we can understand from Scripture. Jesus makes it clear that there will be no such thing as marriage in heaven. I'm sorry if that comes as a shattering blow to some of you here, or some of you online. There will be no such thing as marriage in heaven. The good news is that actually our capacity to love one another will be so much greater when we're in heaven. Marriage between one man and one woman you know, is something that God designed for the continuation of the human race on earth. 
where death exists. But in heaven there is no death and therefore no need for marriage. Jesus tries to explain to them that life in heaven will be so different to life on earth. He talks about us being equal with angels. Put out of your mind any thought of little cherubs <laughs> with wings that you might have seen in art galleries or on postcards. Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers, who do his will. The picture of eternal life Jesus is painting for these Sadducees is of us as sinless beings existing to carry out the will of our Father God, joining with the millions of other angels in worshipping him and giving glory to him. It's an existence where the suggestion of marriage that they raise is a total irrelevance. We shall see our God face to face and our whole focus will be on worshipping and serving him. Jesus' response to the Sadducees silences them and they dared not ask him any questions. Such was his knowledge and understanding and reliance on the authority of Scripture. But Jesus isn't done with them yet. We read in verse 41, But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Here Jesus turns the tables on them and asks them a question. They and all those listening would have been aware of the promises we read in the Old Testament of God sending a Messiah who would be born into the line of David. In Psalm 110 that Jesus quotes, David says, The Lord, meaning the God the Father, sent, said to my Lord, meaning the Son, Jesus, sit at my right hand. If Jesus was David's son, why would he refer to him as Lord? Why not son or heir? How can this coming Messiah be both David's son and David's Lord? The leaders of the day and of the people and the people had viewed the prophecies regarding the Messiah through earthly lenses, ones that caused them to believe that this descendant of David would be a strong political figure, one who would bring about a change, yes, a change, a new sort of kingdom, but in the here and now, they'd missed the point that the one born into David's line would also be the Son of God, one with power, all power in heaven and on earth, one to whom his enemies would bow. In posing this question to them, Jesus exposed their limited understanding of Scripture. And then finally, Jesus issues a warning. In verse 45, and in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, 
Beware of the scribes who, walk, who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. The scribes were living lives of pretense. They loved their position and status and the trappings that came with these. But they were hypocrites. They weren't sincere about their faith or their belief. The warning for them and for any today who follow the same pattern is that the judgment will be harsh. It will be severe. We've covered a huge amount of ground today and I want to pull it all together now as we conclude. I began by saying that this passage was all about authority. We've seen those who sought to undermine Jesus' authority. We've seen those who sought to rebel against his authority. Those who wanted to put others alongside him as equal to him or even above him in authority. And those who sought to ridicule or devalue scripture and the authority of scripture and to twist it to their own ends. And we've seen how Jesus dealt with them and what he said were the consequences of their unbelief. If you're here today or listening online and you haven't yet acknowledged Jesus as Messiah and haven't put your trust in him, I urge you to consider him today. See him for who he really is, the one and only Son of God. Recognize why it was he came. Recognize that you've fallen so far short of God's standards and that you can do nothing by your own efforts about that. Come and accept that out of his loving kindness, Jesus has paid the penalty that would have been yours and seek his forgiveness. If you're a Christian here today, you've accepted the finished work of Jesus, the Messiah on the cross, you know you're part of his kingdom. Let me ask you as I ask myself, are you willingly submitting to his lordship, his authority in all areas of your life? Or are there areas you set aside as no-go areas as far as he's concerned? Maybe you still want to be in the driving seat when it comes to your relationships or your career or your finances or how you spend your time. Yes, he's given us free will. But if we truly accept him as king, as Lord, and if we truly understand the magnitude of all that he's done for us, we will want to know his will for our lives and to follow that. You know, there's real security in coming under the authority of the one who knows the beginning from the end, the one who knows the future, the one who knows everything about us and seeks the very best for us. The Apostle Paul wrote, to the Christians at Philippi. In Philippians chapter 3, 
Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and his power, the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers and sisters, let's press on in our faith. Let's submit daily to Christ's Lordship and seek to do his will so our lives bring glory to him. Let's pray.